It is good to be with you all on this 16th Sunday after Pentecost and this glorious Sunday morning in South Florida. Our revised common lectionary for today includes a wonderful text from the book of Genesis, and our lesson comes from the concluding paragraphs of the story of Joseph. Genesis begins with God looking at all God has created, saying it is good, very good actually, And it ends with Joseph telling his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. The book begins with God breathing life into creation. It ends with Joseph's body in a coffin, but as commentator Robert Alter points out, a new expansion and new birds follow. The ending of Genesis, which means the beginning, is powerful. What God starts, God finishes. What God promises, God fulfills. I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 50, the last chapter of the book, verses 15 to 21, and I invite you to listen for the word of the Lord. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brother said, What if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? So they approached Joseph saying, your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him, and said, We are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good, in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The ending of a story matters. In good literature and film, a compelling story leads the audience to invest their time, attention, and emotions in the unfolding drama. The ending provides the last taste of the story, which the audience will carry with them when the book is finished or when the curtain is closed. Will they feel a sense of satisfaction, confusion, disappointment, or even surprise? If the storytelling is masterful, the ending also provides a key to unlocking a greater understanding of the story as a whole. One of my favorite musicals is the Broadway show called Wicked. I experienced the power of a strong ending when I first watched it. As I was taking in the show for the first time, I was able to follow the plot just fine, or so I thought. Yet, as we were approaching the final scene, a vital piece of information was revealed, and it changed how I understood the entire storyline. Everything in the film suddenly made sense. 
Of course, that made me want to watch the show again. Everyone knows the story about Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, her infamous ruby red slippers and her adventures in the land of Oz, but you won't be fulfilled unless you know the history of the Witch of the West and how she became so wicked. This show was translated from page to stage through Greg McGuire's novel, which takes place before that awful tornado brought Dorothy from Kansas to the great land of Oz. The story of Wicked follows the Wicked Witch of the West and the Good Witch, and the ending is particularly satisfying. Well, in scripture, endings matter too. The book of Genesis is most famous for its opening chapters. But only in the light of conclusion can we understand the story as a whole. Genesis opens with God's power, speaking order and life into emptiness and chaos. The book closes with God bringing order and peace to a family that has shared a lot of drama and chaos and passed it from one generation to the next. Does anyone here know anything about family drama and chaos? I thought so. The story of Joseph and his brothers takes up about the last third of Genesis and really is a thrilling and dramatic story in scripture. Joseph was the favorite of his father's 12 sons, the golden child. And unfortunately, his father Jacob did not hesitate to show his favoritism. Dad bought his favorite child a flashy new coat and the other boys had to wear hand-me-downs. Joseph always got the easy jobs around the house. Naturally, his brothers became resentful. Furthermore, Joseph was a dreamer, and in his dreams, he always saw himself ruling over his brothers. Now, being a dreamer is not necessarily a problem, unless the dreamer is inclined to go around telling everybody about it. Joseph was like that. He told everybody his dreams, and, and that made his brothers even more resentful. Well, the hatred of Joseph was too much for the brothers to handle, and it got so bad that they plotted to kill him. But before they could carry out their plan, they sold their brother as a slave to a caravan headed for Egypt. Then they told their father that the golden child had been eaten by wild animals. The drama does not end here. This could have been devastating to Joseph, who was only about 17 years old at the time, but not Joseph. In Egypt, he was sold to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. In Potiphar's household, Joseph worked really hard, and he actually did pretty well. He even got promoted to the manager of Potiphar's entire household. Joseph was young and handsome, and he was always there, while Mr. Potiphar was often away for business. You know what's coming, right? More drama. Now, Mrs. Potiphar tried to get to know Joseph, if you know what I mean, but Joseph refused, and Mrs. Potiphar, who was angry and hurt, falsely accused Joseph of the very thing he had refused to do. 
Good old Mr. Potiphar, of course, believed Mrs. Potiphar and had Joseph thrown in prison. Once again, this could have been devastating to Joseph, but the dreamer was not crushed as many would. He was not bitter. Though he spent some time in prison, he kept on, well, dreaming. While Joseph was incarcerated, the Pharaoh had a dream that he did not understand. And Joseph knew how to interpret dreams. So Pharaoh had Joseph released from prison so he could interpret the dream. In his interpretation of the dream, Joseph explained that there will be seven years of plenty in Egypt, followed by seven years of famine. And therefore, he recommended to Pharaoh that they should conserve the grain and prepare for the coming years of famine. Well, Pharaoh was so impressed with Joseph's interpretation that he appointed Joseph to be second in line below Pharaoh. Joseph's dream came true. What God revealed to him had come to pass. Oh, not the way Joseph expected, but his dream came true. Joseph led the nation through the seven years of famine, and Egypt was doing well. Soon caravans were coming from all over to buy more grain there. And guess who came to buy grain? Yep, Joseph's brothers, who were still living in the land of Canaan. When his brothers came to Egypt, Joseph recognized them. But the siblings did not recognize Joseph. After all, it, it had been over 20 years since they had seen one another, and Joseph was now a grown man. He probably dressed like an official or something. You know how people change over time. Maybe the brothers tried to forget Joseph, but not the dreamer. And Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. The brothers expected Joseph to be bitter and vengeful. They worried that he would want to get even with them. But Joseph surprised them all and told them not to be worried or angry. He even shared his confidence in the providence of God, working in his life with his brothers. So they all moved to Egypt, where things were mostly peaceful, until their father Jacob died. In chapters 49 and 50, the children have gathered at the deathbed of their father Jacob. This is a familiar ritual for families who have lost a loved one. Depending on the circumstances, the kids are often called to the bedside before the actual death. Sometimes there are ethical decisions surrounding end-of-life issues that must be made. Families may need help to deal with grief, legal issues, and family dynamics or some simply want to share both the positive and negative experiences and relationships surrounding this difficult time. Well, in this scene, Joseph's actions reflect deep devotion to his father while grieving. Joseph's brothers, on the other hand, were focused on their own future. We're not surprised, right? It's possible they were reliving their past, remembering the time they plotted to kill Joseph and sold him as a slave and told his father that he was dead. 
the brothers' fears had haunted them and resurfaced again. Maybe they were afraid that Joseph had been gracious to his brothers while their father was alive, but now with God, with dad gone, maybe Joseph would seek revenge. In times like this, it's not uncommon for families to relive traumatic events of the past and try to deal with the unresolved issues. For those who have lost loved ones, maybe you can relate. We feel the tension in the text, don't we? As a chaplain and pastor, I have been privileged to be invited into those sacred spaces in which families are fraught with grief, anxiety, and a whole host of emotions that are inherent in a family system. A few years ago, one of the retired pastors in the area was brought to the hospital via ambulance. He had tripped over his dog getting up in the night and ended up in the ICU waiting for emergency surgery. He had multiple comorbidities and the surgery was risky, though necessary, in order to keep him alive. But the patient insisted he would not go to surgery without talking with clergy. I thought maybe he wanted a prayer before surgery, but that's not what happened. Instead, he said, Pastor, I need you to contact my three sons. We've been estranged for a few years. My youngest son lives in the next town over, and he works for the Parks and Rec Department. Could you find him and tell him I am sorry and I love him? And then the medical team came to whisk the retired pastor to the OR with all his comorbidities and unresolved relationships. In our text for today, the brothers asked Joseph for forgiveness. And guess what? Joseph was not bitter. Even though the brothers lied about his father's wishes, and even after all the shenanigans and drama they had caused in the family, Joseph was not looking to get even. In verse 20, Joseph said to his brothers, Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good. I like Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message. Joseph explains to his siblings, Don't you see? You planned evil against me, but God used those same plans for my good. As you see all around you right now, life for many people. Easy now. You have nothing to fear. I'll take care of you and your children. He reassured them, speaking with them heart to heart. And they all lived happily ever after. Joseph continued to live in Egypt with his father's family. Joseph lived 110 years. When he died, he was embalmed and was placed in a coffin in Egypt. The end. Not really. Life provides perspective, doesn't it? Sometimes we have to get to the end in order to understand the story as a whole. 
The ending of a story matters. But in life, we can't wait until the end in order to determine how we should live. And that's where we catch glimpses of grace in our text for today. In the story of Joseph and his brothers, were there surprises? Confusion? Disappointment? Tension in the family? Did you feel a sense of satisfaction at the end of the story? The ending does matter. But we must live our lives without knowing the ending. Though people may hurt us, though things fall apart, though families sometimes misbehave, though illness and disease creep into our lives, though finances become hard to manage, though siblings plot to kill us, hopefully not, God intends it all for good. And not just for you and me, but for many. Here's the thing. We can't always see how God is moving in and around our lives, our communities, our churches, our nation, and across the globe. But God is in all of it. All of it. As I reflected on our text for today, I couldn't help but wonder what Joseph was thinking, when he wasn't dreaming, that is. There must have been times Joseph wondered, where is God in all of this? Where is God anyway? Some of the things that happened to Joseph were really, really horrible. The silence of God must have been deafening when he sat in prison. But somehow, Joseph kept believing in God, trusting God, serving God, even when God was silent. The key point of our text for today is that the providence of God is such a critical spiritual truth that believing and living by it can transform your life. When we are able to discern how God works in and around us in history as well as in the present, we are able to move along on the journey called life with purpose, which will keep us moving forward. Even when we don't seem to understand what God is doing, or we feel like God is far away, God is still working behind the scenes. Fear not, church. Fear not. God is at work in our lives, in our church, communities, and beyond, and takes the good, the bad, and the ugly, and works it for good. It may look like it kind of happens randomly, but the providence of God is not random. God's providential care works both through and despite free human action for good. Well, this would be a good time to wrap things up. But I don't want us to think that we should comfort ourselves and others by assuring us that tragedy and suffering are not that bad 
because it's for our own good, and it's okay that evil is fine because good will come out of it. No. In her book called Gospel Medicine, Barbara Brown Taylor writes about the variations on divine providence. God will find a way. The Lord will provide. Whatever God asks of you, God will also give you what it takes to do it. You've all heard them, right? Sometimes these platitudes are really annoying. The problem with these sayings is that people pat you on the arm, and though they mean well, it doesn't help. God will provide. It's true. But we cannot simply ignore human suffering. We cannot. Can you imagine someone saying to Joseph when he was sold into slavery at age 17, don't worry, Joey, everything will turn out just fine in the end? No. Just look at his life. Betrayal. Grief. Rescue. Blessing, weeping, healing, more weeping, more blessing. It's all woven together. In his commentary on Genesis, theologian Walter Brueggemann says that each reality depends on the other. In other words, suffering and blessing go together. Elevate one at the expense of the other, and you blow the whole equation. Because neither one is the truth all by itself. And so we see this in our story of Joseph and his brothers. They sold their brother into slavery, yet their hostility toward him made it possible for Joseph to become a ruler in Egypt who saved his brothers and others when they needed food. In verse 20, Joseph said to his brothers, Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good and for many. For many. Joseph listened to his life and could see God's presence and movement all around him. His brothers, they didn't get it. They thought their life depended on them instead of relying on God's plan, which was much more interesting than their own. The story speaks truth into our own lives. Sometimes it's hard to see what God is doing in the here and now. When we look back, it's easier to see the providence of God. But even when God seems to be far away or silent, God is still doing the things of God. And our job is to keep on believing and trusting in God's goodness and faithfulness as individuals and as a church. We continue to live into the women, men, and children God has called us to do and be, knowing that God will take the failures, the successes, the accidents, and the tragedies of life 
and transformed them into good to accomplish God's glorious purpose. Friends, let's keep asking the question, where is God in all of this? Because God is so in all of it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.